pretty much just to start off with the disclaimer. So essentially kind of what the series Tell Me About Yourself is really dedicated towards is just bringing kind of conversations which may typically kind of be held as between friends or kind of not necessarily within the public space, really to the public space. Um, the reason being just because a lot of the times the stories that are actually important are the ones we don't really hear. Um, so I just want to actually have those, those conversations. So to kind of transition from that disclaimer part, now shifting into kind of actually looking into really the topics of the day and, and kind of what we're going to discuss. So what are your actual thoughts on the protest? Um, the protest meaning... Oh, the protest. Oh, the protest. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I had process. Sorry. Um, so the protest, um, mm-hmm. I think, I think the protest was a, was, I think the protest was a combination of a couple of things, but in essence, it was a combination of just like decades of, um, resurging repression against, uh, black people. Mm-hmm. Actually, I shouldn't say resurging, but just decades of, you know, continuously filmed and continuously um, you know, shown to us oppression of black people, but not just oppression. It was just the disdain as which these videos, um, showed that, um, the, like the actual disregard of like, you know, black human life. Yeah. And I think that, um, that, that was, that was the main reason behind uh, the protest. But I also think, you know, factors like, you know, increasing, um, uh, increasing joblessness, increasing less economic activity mm-hmm. people have. You know, a lot more time to be sensitized to these issues because of COVID. I think also there was an atmosphere set by Trump, you know, almost, you know, four years ago that invited, um, you know, resistance from, you know, vast majority of, of people in America who never mm. felt he should have won and who felt that, you know, the, the increase in racial injustice was a, as a result of uh, the Trump presidency. Yeah. So I, I think it was a combination of all those things. But like I said, in essence, just you know, the continuous filming and the continuous showing to us of the disregard for black um, yeah. lives in, in America, that is. And I think it's really important that you touched upon kind of the actual fact that it's now being documented and filmed. Because I think kind of a lot of the, at least kind of subliminal power um, that white supremacy and white privilege has is the fact that with it almost comes an automatic believability. Whereas kind of when you're a black person who's been a victim of an injustice, they always kind of put that onus on the victim to prove that such an event happened or to prove that they didn't agitate the situation. You'll often hear, oh, what did you do? Or, you know, were you aggressive with the police? Or, you know, maybe you should have complied more. But it's just interesting now that there's kind of video evidence of it, it does make it um, a lot less kind of disputable. Uh, I think shifting yeah, from that, yeah, another um, kind of interesting thing I want to touch upon. So you mentioned uh, kind of Donald Trump um, and kind of the rhetoric you use. So, so what are your thoughts around that? When, when Donald Trump announced the win, I think I was actually in the SU and I was, um, with a bunch of, it was my first year, like, first time in, uh, living in, like, you know, quote unquote, the Western world. And, um, we were, you know, in a group watching a large screen, watching the elections and, you know, no one thought he'd win. And then obviously he won. And, um, the first thing I did was I called my friends who are, um, in America. And so our context is we've been born, born and raised in Kenya, um, you know, international school. So, uh, some exposure, but we've never lived outside of a majority black country, right? Yeah. So, um, we didn't quite understand what it means to have like, uh, someone of that, um, of that standing become president, right? So I called my friends in America and, and they're just like, oh, he's one, um, I guess people are sad. 
but I'm not sure what it means. And, you know, fast forward three, four years later, um, you know, you've come to understand what a, like a mood, a national mood and a national uh, mindset such a leader can give to the people. Mm-hmm. And now my friends who are in America are talking about how, um, you know, they don't want to be there. Um, it, it, it was, it was sold to them as, you know, a, a dream of education, American dream, et cetera. But, you know, they don't want to be there anymore. And they're one of the lucky few that have an option. They can come back to Kenya and um, have a, like, relatively prosperous, right? But, yeah. I mean, that just goes to show, like, sometimes you don't understand what type of um, effect such a dangerous or poisonous person can have mm. up until, you know, it starts to show up in your doorstep, in your society. You have people that are validated by the president to go out and do things that are... um Races to do things that are um, just incredibly damaging to you know black society and other areas of society. So I think um, you know you never, we never really knew what could happen, but I think the enabling factor that Trump has on uh, races and you know people of that standing, I think that's that's been the most um, critical thing. Hmm. Uh, I think I definitely do um, agree. It's always interesting because obviously during these interviews, this ID should remain kind of impartial and try not to give your own viewpoint. But I do always find whenever we talk about the issue of the identity, the issue of kind of black identity, especially within a political sense, there isn't really a way for me to kind of remain impartial. And what I mean by this is if you look at um, kind of Trump's presidency in particular, so even just looking at kind of the last month or last two months, right, you saw kind of the reaction he gave to protesters who were arguing or kind of campaigning or whatever you want to call it for essentially states to reopen. Um, these yeah. are people who were heavily armed. Um, so I saw people with like assault rifles, shotguns, pistols, roaming the streets, um, getting involved in altercations with the police. They were literally storming, uh, government buildings, um, demanding obviously that these states reopen. And these are people who Trump almost seemed to again, as you said, embolden and support. Um, whereas kind of when you had protests kind of against the brutality of George Floyd's death, um, yes, there were riots within some of those protests. Yes, some of those protesters and some of those protests did turn violent. Uh, and this is even ignoring the fact that police did escalate a lot some of the situations. I think again the reaction was really quite different because in one you saw praise and in the other you saw threats of brutality, saw acts of brutality, and you saw even the threat that the active military could be deployed uh, on the streets itself uh, to essentially limit the rights of people to protest. So I do yeah. find Trump a really interesting example. I think maybe then kind of bringing it to a global context. Do you think there's any kind of parallels to Trump in the UK or in Kenya or uh, anywhere globally? Um, so, I mean, you have Trump in in a group and that group would be, you know, the pseudo-charismatic, um, you know, ultra, like, right-wing, ultra, like, you know, machismo man. Like, you, you just, you have him as, like... Um, you know, a, a somewhat like modern day Mussolini, right? Like he's, yeah. <laughs> he, he does things unorthodox, he's flashy and like he, he thrives on populism, populism. And I mean, if you, like you don't have to look too far to see those type of men, um, in, in, in leadership positions. But I think what, what was, you know, the anomaly with Trump mm-hmm. was that he ended up being leader of the, you know, the greatest, uh, <laughs> most powerful country in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. Like if, you know, you have a Trump-esque leader in like, I don't know, like Uganda or Kenya, like it's fine. Like, you know, 
those things are normal they're common like you don't have really super strong democratic processes but then when you have it in a country like america um you begin to ask yourself maybe it's you know it's it's the uh, i guess not the leaders per se but you know the electric yeah. the electric that you have to um you think you we thought we knew the electric trust that we don't know them at all mm-hmm. um we had assumptions about american liberalism about how america the type of person america would vote for you know obama hillary like we had ideas about who the american the electorate would vote for but then they showed us you we think you know us but you don't know us yeah. and um similar yeah similarly like in 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 the uk like you know obviously you have examples but not that extreme like most of those examples were um super prominent during the brexit um era um the Brexit campaign era and a lot of them um ended up stepping away from uh public office because uh, i guess the electorate kind of and, and the thing is the fact that they won the fact that they incited you know the british public to vote against brexit with you know rhetoric that was so similar to trump mm-hmm. you know just anti immigrant um just you know um just extremely um like intense rhetoric yeah. like it also showed like people in the uk oh maybe our electric our electorate isn't as um dissimilar to those in america mm. so i think and then when when you start to make that link you start to think maybe our electorate in america and the uk isn't so dissimilar to those in the philippines or those in uganda or yeah. those in south africa because you know you have a trend of this type of leaders coming um the forefront so i think trump did less to show us about himself because we already knew who he was than he did to show us about the type of electorate in America mm-hmm. and the type of rhetoric they respond to and how similar that is to just you know nations that are led by populists around the world mm-hmm. so i th- i think the biggest insight from trump is it showed us america still has a crazy white supremacy problem it still has a crazy um you know um extremist issues that um you know we wouldn't have noticed during the Obama era. So that's that's been the biggest learning for me um since Trump. Mm. And I think it's interesting kind of looking at kind of the global context because we obviously kind of thought towards a shift towards populism, but it's almost kind of tied in this idea that's almost been kind of failure from globalization to actually again support the people at the lowest well people who are struggling the most from again whether this will be kind of the exploitation of labor or jobs or whether this be exploitation from kind of industries and international trade agreements and i do think that kind of a similar rhetoric they see in america and the uk in particular this idea that kind of if you vote for this kind of figure or for this policy or for this kind of almost this golden egg um through it will be able to kind of reverse the wrongs that you feel that have been done to you and we'll be able to respond and we'll be able to return either yourself or your nation or your family to some type of kind of economic prosperity um So that's kind of at least my own observing from it. And I think it's also similar to it's also interesting you mentioned the Philippines because obviously again Duterte um is is another figure who kind of reflects and highlights those um kind of views. But one thing you touched upon kind of before was kind of mentioning that this wouldn't be too surprising to see in kind of uh Uganda for instance. So let's talk about kind of the politics within black majority nations for a little bit. So what are your kind of viewpoints on the fact that even within these kind of majority black nations there's still anti-blackness that's that's a very good point um 
that that's a very strong point. And I think, uh, so from my perspective, so when you, when you grow up, like, for example, if you're, I, I'd, I'd imagine it's the same for people that grow up in extremely homogenous societies. If you're, if you grow up in a, you know, extremely homogenous black majority society, like you don't grow up with notions of race. You don't grow up with notions of, um, you know, blackness, anti-blackness. You don't grow up with, I mean, you don't grow up with race as a construct. You don't, go, you don't grow up knowing what racism is. So, you know, growing up, I think the only reference to racism was maybe one school year we had a Black History Month. But even then, you don't really get the gravity of, you know, what that means, especially, you know, all the way in East Africa, all the way in Nairobi, surrounded by, you know, very, very similar people that have never interacted with this in their lives. So what happens um, is that you know, your mind begins to shift as you grow older. Obviously, you spend a few years in, you know, the UK or some Western society, and then you become sensitized to it, right? And then you come back home and you realize that, wait a minute, there's racism in my, you know, in my home as well. There's anti-blackness in my home as well. And one of what the, the, the most, um, stark realization was, came when, um, one of my friends, his name is Jeff. He's from America. Mm-hmm. Um, so he grew up in America, high school, um, went to university, and then he came to do university in Kenya. And we've been friends forever. So I just asked him, I'm like, um, yo, um, how's racism in the, in the U.S.? And he said, um, the, the first time I experienced racism was when I came to Kenya. He said, like, wow. all my time, like, mm-hmm. in Alabama, I, I had not experienced racism. The first time I experienced racism was mm-hmm. when I came to Kenya. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said that, you know, um, because Kenya is like a tourist centric, um, country, you know, you, people pander more to like white tourists with, you know, potential foreign currency. So he said he went to a restaurant and the, the only black people in that restaurant and they didn't get served. And he asked for service and he didn't get served. Um, and they looked around and they realized it must be because we're black. And he saw a trend like, you know, he'd go to nightclubs and, um, Younger white people would be let in, but he would, you know, he'd be told to give his ID and, you know, prove it's you. So, called something from, um, Barack's memoir, who, when he came to visit Kenya, he said that, um, when we would go to, you know, restaurants or go to places frequented by tourists, no one would pay attention to us because we were not, um, we were not, we were not white. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, you know, a very young Barack Obama. And he said that coming from a, a white person, carries a type of confidence in the developing world or in a black world having come from a country that has um, has a history of empire mm. so they are coming from you know we are emperors and you are not and it's being it's being um, entrenched into the society because you know they're still serving them I mean beat for a few dollars but they're still serving them they're not serving the black people so mm. with that um, not so brief context <laughs> to your question um I think anti-blackness in, in the country, in, in Kenya, in, in Africa has been entrenched in a couple of things. First in the, um, the capitalist system that just, you know, treasures and craves for foreign currency because our own economic dependencies are just, they, they don't exist. We're dependent on, um, a, you know, a different foreign, um, uh, different foreign income. Yeah. And also, you know, just a colonial history and, you know, one thing that is often overlooked, for example, in Kenya, is that um, a lot of the time, um, a lot of the time in Kenya, you find that, you know, it's not just white people being racist. You also have Indian people being racist because it, um, 
British, uh, the British put the Indians from India back in the early 1900s, you know, as lieutenants to help them manage the black African. So you find that hierarchy has existed all around this, all over this decade. Mm. And you find that it's not just, it's, it's, it's not just, uh, white people. It's anyone who has power with a different skin tone. So I think racism, I, I mean, you said anti-blackness, which I, which I think is a great, is a great statement because it also shows that black people have issues with, you know, being mm. black. And, um, I mean, you see this in many industries, like, you know, the cosmetic industry, which is rife in, you know, Africa, where people are constantly trying to get lighter because it's associated with, you know, wealth and prosperity and a certain class and just a closer proximity to whiteness. So the anti-blackness doesn't have to come from, you know, white or others, but yeah, in a way, mm. Been entrenched in black people themselves, but um, and I could go on and on, but I think those are the main points. No, I think that actually co- covered it beautifully. To be honest, I think the context was definitely necessary as well. So thank you for that. I think for me, kind of what I resonated with in what you're saying was almost kind of this idea of kind of a colonial psyche or kind of that mentality having remained following obviously the trauma of colonialization, uh, in the sense that there still kind of remains that ethnic hierarchy within the nation itself. There still kind of remains a lot of times kind of white savior complex. This idea that, you know, kind of white people from abroad are going to c- come over and, you know, they're going to spend money or they're going to come over and help us th- fix things that be economic or political or social or um, any kind of format. There's still kind of this idea that we should kind of aspire towards that and hope for that. And I think that definitely is really quite damaging um, for kind of a lot of, a lot of, a lot of kind of societies within Africa um, as a whole. I think the example that I, we always talked about, um, in kind of uni itself um, was the fact that you would have, you know, these kind of white students say, oh yeah, I'm going to go spend my summer in, you know, Nigeria or Ghana or Kenya or Uganda or whatever, building houses or, or teaching English and I'm going to change the world from doing this. Uh, and then the thing that always kind of made me annoyed, and I actually remember getting into an argument about this in first year, was the fact that the amount of money that is being spent on just sending that single student to those countries could probably pay a domestic teacher's wages for a much longer period of time. Um, because these are teachers who, so these are students who typically go to the host nation that they're going to for maybe two, three weeks. Um, obviously the cost of the transport itself. So even just looking at, even if I underestimate, so let's assume that a flight to Nigeria is 500 pounds, right? Even that 500 pounds, yeah. I think the exchange rate of Naira to pounds at the moment, I think might literally be 500 Naira per pound. Um, although I'm not, I've not checked in a while, but imagine okay. time, times yeah, that 500. Check this morning, yeah. it have changed. Times that five. <laughs> 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 I mean, I'm allowed to say that, but, um, <laughs> times that 500 by 500, essentially. And that's enough yeah. wages to pay an actual teacher in Nigeria yeah. for a yeah. bare minimum a month. Realistically, probably yeah. half a year. Um, yeah. to give a bit of context for that, um, uh, my mom's actually, she kind of runs, um, women empowerment, um, kind of events and uh kind of businesses in nigeria and she was telling me how the rent for kind of a three-bedroom flat um that she wanted to pay for for one of the women who's helping her in nigeria was 130 pounds and that was the rent for a year wow. as in for a three a three-bedroom flat 130 pounds for a year so wow. that 500 pounds could house what three people it could provide a lot more money a lot more value than just that one, oh, yes, yeah. yeah, that one student, you know, going abroad, taking those nice selfies, uh, and 
having that learning experience. But to kind of throw the question back to you then, because I do feel like I've potentially <laughs> gone on a little bit of a personal rant. No, just please speak. I'm learning. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's extremely important point you made, bro. No, but what's your kind of thoughts on the idea of kind of a white saviour complex? People or people with... Um, I, I, I want to say, let's just say white people, right? Because mm-hmm. you, have, you, have, uh, you have like Asian people that would come. And I think... When you see the contrast of how they behave in Africa, you realize that there's a, they come from different societies. Like, um, sure, let's look at, um, you know, an Asian investor coming into the country versus a white investor coming into the country. Mm-hmm. Um, Chinese. Sorry, my mom's yelling my name. So, oh, um, no, it's okay. Sure. I'll just ignore her. So <laughs> the, the Chinese businessman coming into the country. They're, they're, for some reason, just more relatable. Like, they understand, um, how, you know, things should, things kind of work in the developing world. They understand, you know, how they should deliver, how they sh- should interact with workers. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's a way that they treat the people that, uh, a white, um, counterpart would not. So now let's look at, you know, a wealthy white person coming to the country. My God, like, it's just, it's, it's literally the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> like, it's the worst thing that could happen to Africa. Because there's a difference between extraction and there's a difference between extraction and partnership. And when white people come into um, Africa, even if it seems like they want to save, even if it seems like they want to give vaccines or like, um, you know, administer healthcare or like teaching schools, like somehow it just benefits them. and this I don't know if you follow Nyla's Instagram. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, dude. But so Nyla, Nyla just captures all of this perfectly, right? So um, she talks about how a lot of white women have come into Kenya and have began have become really attracted to the um, the Kenyan artists and the Kenyan um, artifacts and the Kenyan jewelry and they can just anything cosmetic jewelry that is Kenyan, right? They become super attracted to, and they thought. Oh, let me start a social enterprise and sell this jewelry back in London or back in Paris or back in New York and then give a small fraction of the profits to, um, the Kenyan women. So that entire system of exploitation, that's the foundation of imperialism. That's yeah. literally the foundation, <laughs> like stealing labor, stealing intellectual property, sell, exporting it and selling it for a profit. That's, 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 that's slavery. That is, uh, <laughs> you know, economic exploitation. That is with the resource curse. That's every form of exploitation in that microcosm of an example. And that's not to say that there are not some like good white people, right? And also like at risk of going overboard, I'm just going to give my personal solution, like, my personal opinion on mm-hmm. the types of solutions that white people create. So when I, when I, before university, I was a social entrepreneur. I built some houses for some people and, you know, I, during that time, I started researching a lot what it means to be a social entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, so you develop solutions for people that I need, but then you make, you localize those solutions for them and you make it somehow sustainable. Yeah. That's what I thought it was, right? And then I started looking at social enterprises run by white people. And my, that's, that's the majority of them, by the way. And so I, I looked at them and, um, all of them are offering services to Africans that they wouldn't dare offer in their own country in to sense? their own people. So 
Um, let's look at the company called Mcoba Solar, mm-hmm. like one of the biggest um, uh, uh, electric off off grid electric company, right? So they just give lamps to people, basically. They give lamps to people and they ask them to pay for those lamps. And they say you can study at night with lamps because you didn't have electricity. Now you can study at night. Yeah. And that's one example. Another example is um, there's some oh, there's some stupid ass company that you know how African women carry um, buckets on their head of water. Yeah. There's some stupid ass company that created a, uh, like a. It sounds clever, but I think it's ridiculous. They created like a a, a a big barrel that they can roll on the ground like this instead of carrying on their head. Um, so just, a, just so, wait, so they're, they're selling a, so, they're selling a wheelbarrow basically. I'm dead serious. It blew up. I'm not even like you. I will borrow of water. I'm gonna, I'm actually just gonna go to that <laughs> at some point as we speak and you'll just see. Yeah. So like there's a plethora of this ridiculous ass ideas. Like, um, you know, like, like creating like really, really small toilets in slums, like creating, um, really, really slow wifi for people. The behind it is we've made their lives better. You mm-hmm. can understand. We made their lives better. They they can now fetch water faster if they drive the yeah. water down. They can now access electricity. That they can now um you know like this just made life a little better, right? But they would never implement this solution in their own countries ever. It's because what, what do they do in their own countries? They build houses. Yeah, exactly. They would just be like, you have a slum. Let's let's rip the slum and just build you know yeah. um, decent housing. You you don't have water. Let's just pipe clean water yeah. into a house. You have a house, let's build your house. You have internet, let's get you 5G. Like, you have, like, world-class solutions. But then they come to Africa and they're like, hmm, these people don't deserve this world-class yeah, solution. here's a wheelbarrow. Let's, 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 let's innovate. <laughs> let's innovate and give them stuff. A lamp, yes. A wheelbarrow <laughs> for what? So, I, I, I began to, like, really look at the, you know, white savior complex package that social enterprises, and I began to feel disdain for it mm-hmm. because even as you, the example you mentioned of um, teachers, like student teachers coming to teach, right? Yeah. And the type of authority this like white student teachers would have in the school is like ludicrous. Like, yeah. you know, okay, one, the problem of the school is far outweigh just not having, you know, a seasonal white teacher. Like you can't solve the problem. Yeah. Like if you're trying to solve the problem of the school, if you as a white person really thought of yourself as an equal to a black person, then you wouldn't you'd try and give them the same experience that you've had in school. So you'd go to maybe a university and be like, I will invest in this university to the standards of Oxford or Warwick. Yeah. But you're like, no, it's Africans. We're just gonna give you a little bit of uh, we're, just, we're just gonna send off and, yeah. We're gonna send our students over yeah, let them take the Yeah, dude, anyway, dude, I'm I'm done with my rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly I, I appreciate the rant. Because even as you're saying it, I just thinking to myself like Imagine if, um, let's say, for instance, we're at Warwick and the electricity suddenly just like completely shut off and they, they come around to everyone's room and say, hey, here's a lamp. <laughs> you can study at night. <laughs> it's, it's looking at it like that. Would never. They would never, ever consider doing that because they know how exactly. ridiculous it is. Exactly. But I think another thing that you said, uh, you touched upon kind of was actually looking at the idea and the impact on cosmetics because Kind of, you mentioned before, obviously, looking at the fact that uh, skin bleaching or lightening creams, um, there's also kind of damaging practices which are being done to hair to make it look kind of more like straight and, and kind of European and Western styles. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think for me, this kind of represents the idea of kind of colorism within the cosmetics industry. And what I mean by yeah. this is that when kind of you look at everything in context, so first off, looking at kind of this idea of kind of post-clonal trauma, this idea that 
there's still that aspiration towards whiteness and westernness because that is seen as the equivalent of success. You then have that playing out in cosmetics where you have people trying to make themselves look whiter or lighten their skin or potentially have kind of facial surgeries to change the shape of their noses or maybe kind of change the way the hair looks. And these are all done in the idea, these are all done kind of to suppress that blackness and almost kind of make yourself seem again more of a lighter shade or as close to whiteness as you can. So what are kind of your thoughts on this and how has this kind of played out in Kenya even as well? So um again, I'm still learning about this. I think you 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 know you'd know a lot more about this than me, but um and I'd actually ask you a few questions afterwards, but like being more sensitized to it when I came back, it's um it's the idea that um like if you're if you're of lighter skin, you're smarter. If you have lighter skin, you're more beautiful. If you have lighter skin, you are more privileged, richer, wealthier, et cetera, et cetera. Because, um, everything we see in the world tells us as much. Mm. It just like, it tells us like factually as much. Like, I, I always, I always think that if you, if you, if you look at a map of the world and you look at it by GDP, like, you know, where, where's the highest GDP? Why people, do people live the longest? Where do you get the best healthcare? You know the best, um, you know the best mental health support, the best, the most democracy. If you look at the map of the world, you'll find that the areas that are the whitest are the areas where these things exist the best, the most or the best, and the areas that are the blackest are the areas where you're going, you're more likely to have an impoverished life. So, and then we see these images everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere. We see, um, uh, we watch a movie and we see, you know, the, the, the male black man choosing the light skin over the dark skin. Yeah. Um, we watch, like, we see advertisements showing us how, you know, if, um, if, if you use, if your hair is in a type of way or, um, if you, you know, the people in power, even if they're black or white, you know, they dress up in a certain way, they look a certain way, their, their hair is a type of way. So we have all these reinforcing things. That show us as much, and the reason that that is because the people in control of you know our media and our economy are predominantly white. And mm. for, I mean, you have to understand that for centuries, like since like maybe fifteen hundreds, from in the European Enlightenment, a key construct of that Enlightenment was white is superior than other races. It was, you know, um, Darwinism. It was, yeah. um, you know, philosophers that we, exactly, it was philosophers that me and you have both studied and adore that, that propose ideas that have permeated like century after century after century to show. And I mean, I've taken a historical approach, but I think that's the cause. And I don't know. I, I have no ideas about the solution. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's, that's what it is. I mean, what do you think? Uh, I think even for me, like definitely can resonate with what you're saying. Cause even looking, um, kind of again at what I've been exposed to, obviously growing up in the UK, I feel like it was only like maybe four or five years ago where I actually started seeing adverts where like there were black people dating black people. Because like literally like before that time period, so maybe looking like, like when I was growing up as a kid, Anytime I saw kind of a black man on TV, he always had a white wife. And like, I would very, I barely ever see like a black woman on TV. You see mixed race women, you see like maybe like light skinned women, but I'd rarely ever see a dark skinned black woman on TV. But anytime yep. you saw a, a black man, regardless of kind of what skin tone he was, he always had a white wife. Um, it's only now that I'm kind of seeing 
black actual black 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 couples on TV or black people dating black people. And I do think that like partly that did also trickle down into a lot of kind of like black boys growing up. And I'm not even going to make kind of any excuses for this because there's definitely kind of a lot of anti-blackness within black men in the UK towards black women. Because even as kind of yourself, you were saying like there was this idea that kind of lighter your skin tone or kind of the closer or more proximity you had towards whiteness, the more kind of economic or cultural, even sociological success, social status, yeah, status yeah. or success you'd have. And I think a lot yeah. of black men aspire to that. There's almost kind of um, the stereotype that, you know, black footballers or black rappers or any kind of black male, successful black yeah, man, any yeah. black man, they very rarely have like, a black wife. And it's one I of mean, those, it's I, one of, is that false? It's one of the, yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those ones where like, I'm literally looking at examples and like, there are very few who I can look at, look, there are very few black men who I can see who have wealth and who are rich who are still dating dark-skinned black women. Majority of them, the ones who are still dating black women are probably still dating light-skinned black women. A lot of them are just dating white women. And That's obviously true. people make counter-arguments that are like, oh, you know, when you go into those wealthier spaces, you're more likely to see white women, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. But like, no, yeah, no, it doesn't no, no. It doesn't really hold up. There's also something else definitely going on there. And I think <laughs> it's, it's kind of that anti-blackness. It is. No, I think, I, think, I think you made like a super strong point that it's not just white people that... Um, you know, uh, push this agenda. It's also black men, like, and I'm sure, like, you know, you should talk about black women. I'm sure the experience is different, mm. but you know, yeah, you have you have friends, you have black mates of yours that obviously prefer light skin. You know, say things like, "I only date white women," or "I prefer yeah, light skin." Women. Hey, I have mates. I have mates of mine too. You know, some of them. I suppose <laughs> I don't care. I'm thinking of the same person. That all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like you can't shut him up for some reason. Like I mean, <laughs> you have you definitely have. Um, you know, it it seeped into the mind of black men that, um, yeah, um, black women like are not as desirable. If you're, or, or rather, they don't make you seem successful vis-a-vis a yeah. you know a lightest woman. And I mean, it's it's hard to dismantle, and yeah. it's not even something we had in in university we had it in high school like you know we we had it super early on and you can imagine black girls hearing they're not worthy from their own yeah. you know black male counterparts let alone just from white people in society and you can imagine father still dark-skinned black women yeah um hearing this so i mean it's it's just extremely extremely disheartening and um i i guess it's it's just, it's just that idea that started 500 years ago. And it's, it's still seeping into today. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are still dealing with that idea. Yeah. And I think uh, for me, it's one of those ones in which, because before you're mentioning kind of solutions, I definitely think that kind of the image that was, sh- the images, sorry, that were shown in the media are definitely really quite important. Hence why I'm going to highlight the fact that you're again seeing more like actual black couples in TV shows and movies in adverts, whatever it be is definitely part of it. I think another part of it is kind of, collectively having that conversation and it's always difficult to kind of say that because a lot of the time whenever we're looking at kind of conversations surrounding black women and blackness and the identity of a black person responsibility or onus of that always kind of gets put on the victim in the sense of we'll always put that on the black community rather than rather than kind of looking at you know white supremacy or racism as a whole we're putting kind of misogynoir so kind of the misogyny against black women we're putting the responsibility of that conversation on the black woman itself Whereas kind of as I think black men, a lot of us do need to actively have those conversations. You and I both know who, who we were talking about before. 
these are people who yeah. need to actually challenge on those viewpoints and actually get them to think about kind of one, what you're saying is harmful, and two, why are you even saying that? And not realizing the effect it's having on yeah on the people around you. Exactly. But I think this actually yeah, does that's... kind of take me um really quite effectively um kind of to not necessarily the last question I want to ask you, but kind of what something I did really want to get your opinion on because. If we're talking about kind of, you know, things that people have said during university or high school, I think it's really important to actually kind of look at the universities themselves. Um, and I mentioned before, kind of Warwick University recently kind of made that post. Um, if we're if looking at the right one, it's just that short one saying we support Black Lives Matter, baby students, staff, offerings, and racial justice. Yeah. Do you- yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't really say much. We're committed to living by our principles and values, which include not tolerating any form of racism to make changes institutionally to create a culture of anti-racism before. Uh, I guess so one, it doesn't say much. Mm-hmm. Two, um, if people start calling out the University of Warwick and their type of racism that happens, they actually uh, my girlfriend aunt recently made a post um, on Instagram. Yeah. I don't even follow her. No, explaining no, no. the type of racism that um, she let me see the post uh, yeah no it's not but explaining the type of racism that she felt um, while she was in um, university and mm-hmm. I've heard tons of these stories like yeah. you know black like I don't know I mean this must have happened to you if it didn't then oh lucky, yeah like, black party at black party at bluebell yeah. <laughs> cops campus security rolls up um you know, you're a black person walking around, like, you know, like, suspicion, like, where's your ID? Like, I mean, it's it's an environment that hasn't cared about racial injustice. Yeah. Not that it's, like, thrived in it, but they haven't cared about it. Yeah. And, you know, people people talk about going to counsellors and at the University of Warwick, and they speak to the counsellors, but the counsellor is just, like, a middle-class white woman. Yeah. And she'll never get you. She just will never get you. Yeah. So... Not only are you being deprived of like mental health support, but you're being made to feel like as if you're even more alone. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the university, I mean, yeah, they commented under pressure from, you know, maybe, maybe Oxford or like LSU work who are like making posts and, you know, the social media guys were like, let's get on it. Yeah. But it's just an irrelevant statement. It doesn't mean anything. Like it's so short to the point where they just, it felt, they felt like they just wanted to get it out. Yeah. For me, like yeah. when I actually saw that post, it, it's one of the things that just kind of generally made me quite angry, um, and like it generally did. And a lot of like a lot of the time, uh, people say like normally things would hit me like water off a duck's back. So like I'll see it and I'll be like, "That's stupid. I can move on with my life." But this is one of the reasons why it hit me quite personally is because I definitely experienced racism, anti-blackness at Warwick very repeatedly over the course of those three years. And I don't even mean racism in the sense of kind of being called the N word which I was, but I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it more so in terms of kind of the gaslighting. Um, and I even ended up doing my kind of final year project on this in the sense that kind of whenever, you know, there's common room conversations where people will be debating, they'll say like, you know, economy, I have ideas. And then stuff starts to get said and you're sitting there like, this is very fucked up what these people are actually saying. And I'm sure you've probably experienced that in PPE. I remember um, kind of in the first year, this is around about Christmas time in the PPE, um, you know, the small, small common room we used to have. I remember literally yeah, being yeah. there and like a group of them were debating, you know, why can't white people say the N word? And they were like, like, and even just sitting there listening to like the stuff they were saying, the fact that even they felt comfortable enough to try and say the N word around me, I just had to just be like, what the fuck are you people doing? Uh, and similarly enough, in third year, again, you just keep hearing conversations of people saying things like, 
you know, I don't, I don't think racism exists anymore. It's just, you know, minorities making a fuss. Um, someone even once told me that, you know, if you're, a, if you're a minority, um, and you let racism get to you, that's just a sign that, you know, you're mentally weak. So there's just like a lot of, um, different things you kind of hear and experience over. Do you remember years. during application season? Application season, people would come to you and be like, oh, you're lucky you're black and they have a diversity yeah, culture. Exactly. Oh, she got into this firm just because she's black. Like, exactly. they were looking to fill a quota. Like, you, yeah, you're right. There is a lot of that. Yeah. And the thing is that these people feel comfortable saying these things because they know yeah. that because they haven't necessarily said, you know, the N word or, you know, something yeah. like something that you could just say, bam, that's racist. They can get away with it. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying before in the sense that a lot of these incidents, because they're not documented or videoed, and because, you know, it's not kind of that, that hard hitting, if it hits the media, we're going to be effed type of racism, the university lets it slide. And that's kind of what got me quite angry about kind of that post that I saw. So I don't think they put enough emphasis on kind of unpacking the structural racism in the institution. Dude, I think you've just hit the nail on the head. And to be honest, coming, not having lived in a Western society, like, I, I didn't, like, I didn't notice racism until my third year. I didn't notice I was black until my third year because, like, the environment of the university, they try and make it, like, you know, a bubble. They try and yeah. make it, like, you know, liberal. They try and show they're progressive. You know, you have elections for USC. You have, you know, empowerment of, like, different black societies, you know, African societies. Like, you have all these things that make it feel inclusive. And that's a big, like, big up for the university, right? Yeah. However, when it comes to, um, you know, the response to racism, because I think the university can control racism, but when it comes to the response of racism, mm-hmm. you, Patrick, know that if you go to, um, you know, the head of, you know, the PP department and you say, listen, some kids are being racist, you know not shit is going to be done. In fact, you'll get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, like, you know, like, that they don't have your back. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, and just, the wider society as well. I mean, not just the university, but like the wider society. Like, where do you go? Who do you call when something racist happens? Mm. Like, you see it like, um, you know, the, the most like prominent examples was like, you know, when you have black footballers playing football like Sterling and Rashford and Marshall and like, you know, you have entire stadiums saying, chatting absolute racist rubbish yeah. to them and then nothing songs. is done. And then you think, well, it's just me. I'm not a soccer star. Like, and you know, what am I gonna, who am I gonna talk to? What, what's gonna yeah. happen? And yeah, it's just crazy. No, I think you've definitely hit on the head because like when I'm saying these things, not because I hate Warwick University, I, I definitely appreciate um, having gone there. But I think it's always kind of this question. Sorry, it's always kind of this question when whenever we look at institutions of who holds them to account. And I think a lot of these protests, it's not even about, you know, kind of, I, I mean, again, I don't speak for everyone, but there's not even necessarily people saying all the police are effed or all the government is effed. It's more so just saying the fact that these injustices are allowed to occur and the structural problem there is that there's no accountability. There's no one there to actually call them out on it and say, this is wrong, we need to do something different. And that's kind of what, that's kind of an example of kind of how structural racism manifests itself in the sense that you always kind of see this this kind of example or this kind of phrase that even if we look at the football footballing example, right, that it wasn't all the people in the stadium, it was just, you know, a couple of bad eggs, it was just a couple of bad people, and everyone else there was good. But you have a stadium full of fans, full of people who are supposed to love these footballers, love the team, who did nothing. In my view, all of you are complicit in that. And I'm not even, I'm not even, like, personally, 
if someone starts shouting monkey snorts to me, it's it's game time. I, it like well, it's it's like that that it's it's go it's go time. <laughs> but even even go time, son. even if we're not even talking about it in um, even taking a, uh, kind of the responding to it like you know in, instinctively, even if we're looking at more so kind of just calling them out on it, just saying why are you saying that, what you're saying is wrong. Even going into security, even going to like people of authority in that space and reporting it. These are the things that aren't be done, aren't being done. This is kind of what people are angry about. Now, until there's yeah. a protest, until people are like, until people start having to physically yell and put their bodies on the on the front lines and put themselves at risk, especially during a pandemic yeah. and especially during uh, kind of such a period where people have lost their jobs, it's economic uncertainty, yeah. people's lives are at risk. We even heard um, kind of last week or this week that black people in the UK are kind of too, um, what three to four times more likely to die from coronavirus. And yet again, they're putting themselves on the front line. Why? Because if they don't, their voices don't get heard. And the structure, if they don't, like, they, yeah. they, they don't have a choice anymore. Yeah, exactly. Because the structure and the society itself doesn't kind of call these things uh, out. Good, you're right. Actually, there's a question I wanted to ask you before you go on. Um, what do you think, what do you think would happen? Or rather, what do you think of the new, like, this new term called allyship and like, yeah. you know, white people standing up for black people. Like, you know, what do you think about that? I think I'm going to kind of divide my thoughts into three points. So the first point I'm going to say false allyship. So there are people who say they're allies who are actually enemies. And funnily enough, I'm going to quote a drill rapper, uh, RV in this, who says kind of God protect me from my friends. I'm always prepared for my enemies. Uh, and what this basically <laughs> means to me is the fact that you have people who will, you know, they'll post online and they'll say, you know, come to these protests or come here, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're going to fight against um, racism, we're going to fight against anti- anti-blackness. But then they themselves will perpetuate anti-blackness and racism. And I've personally experienced this kind of within activist communities, within kind of my workplace as well. We have people who will say things like, oh, yeah, you know, like I'm so against, even my line manager. My line manager actually is a perfect example. Uh, well, former line manager is a perfect example of uh, yeah. kind of this false allyship. Because she was someone who also went to Warwick University, was also very vocal about any kind of injustice that she saw, was always kind of talking that, you know, racism is wrong. Um, however, at our Christmas party, um, one of our colleagues, uh, an Asian man, um, started rapping kind of the N-word. And I got reasonably quite angry about, about it. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I, I was yeah. actually very angry about it. And she was like, yeah. oh, stop, stop arguing, guys. You know, let's enjoy the night. So... For me, that's kind of an example of false allyship. That's someone who... Yeah, that's false allyship. Yeah, yeah. that's someone who kind of pro- proclaims to, you know, be about it and to support you. But when push comes to shove, then they're not there. They, they don't have your back. The, Dude, so, I've actually just seen your, your comment on... <laughs> on <laughs> your comment on the post. No, you don't. I'm dead. Sorry. I just had to laugh at that. Yeah, bro. I told you. It just, it just got me angry. I, w- I went on Twitter for like a, long, a longer run. Uh, but, yeah. Um, yeah, when I saw the Warwick post, it just got me angry. Um, the second one I was going to talk about, though, this is kind of looking more so yeah. at, I think, the imperfect ally. And I think, the, I don't believe in a perfect ally, because I think everyone has some type of hidden prejudice or views they need to unpack. Uh, even using myself as an example, um, I could definitely try and call myself an ally to women or an ally to the LGBTQ community, ally to any community out there. But there's definitely times I've said things like homophobic, there are definitely times I've had misogynistic views. So I think the imperfect yeah. ally is what I want to target next. These are people who, at the very least, are putting in the work and are actively trying to better themselves. And I think these are the people who, whilst we can appreciate them, I think we definitely also need to hold them to account. Because I think growth is a continuous journey. 
And if you ever yeah. kind of just say, yeah, you're the perfect ally, you hit it, that's when people start <sighs> to backslide. Um, <sighs> so I think the perfect... Sorry. No, no, go ahead. So I was going to say, I think the perfect ally is kind of what you come across the most in terms of people who are actually genuine about trying to, you know, be an actual ally to the black community. They're not perfect, but at least they're trying, is the point I'll make. But I think the last kind of thing I was going to touch upon is more to do with... I think it's more to do with kind of the disinterested person. So I think this is less about kind of allyship itself and more to do with kind of going back to the idea of kind of, you know, economy of ideas um, type of rhetoric or type of conversation. So this is someone who, you know, they'll kind of typically proclaim themselves like a, centri- a centrist, you know, I'm politically neutral, you know, I'm open to hearing anything. But due to, like, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And that's kind of the viewpoints that get put across. So to give you a good example of this, I think um, kind of Warwick PP society, um, or even just looking at any political society across campus, a lot of them were full of people like this. So these are people who just believe that, you know what, regardless of kind of someone's viewpoint, we're going to invite them to campus. In a perfect world, fine, no problem with me, right? But what these people tend to kind of ignore is the fact that a lot of the time people can be invited to campus who cause harm. Uh, and what I mean by this is, um, I can't, it's an irritating, I can't remember the specific name of the lady they invited, but there was one kind of French woman who was... I, I remember there was, there was like a list of like super... yeah. Like, uh, like antagonizing racist, like racial slur people. Yeah. Like even Islamophobic, like there's a, there's a whole host of them. Yeah. But you, you, so you get what the point I'm making. They invite these people yeah. to campus and they'll give them the, they give the idea that we're going to platform them so we can challenge them. Right. But yes. and I, again, I wrote about this in kind of my final year project. What they ignore is two things. One, harm. The fact that these people being given a platform provides them with legitimacy. This is kind of the idea of legitimate concerns. This is the idea that you know, racial hatred suddenly becomes thing, something that can be rationalised. And the reason why I think it's so damaging is because it creates an idea that people within that space have to justify their identity and their existence in that space. And for me, one of the things and one of the tenets which I will happily die on is the fact that regardless of kind of who you are, regardless of kind of what you look like, what you believe, what you identify as, I don't care. I will never try and make someone justify their existence. Because as just the fact that you exist should be justification enough. Um, so that's kind of the first part of that. The second part of that is then looking at the reality. Because the reality is something called kind of double down theory, right? So what this basically means is kind of whenever you have people's viewpoints challenged, we assume that people then change their mind. Uh, I, was, I was trying to clap for you. Really <laughs> I, don't know no, I, I appreciate it, man. But <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like no. imagine if, let's say, for instance, anyone, who, anyone who's had an argument with their parents would know this is false. Because like my dad yeah. might have arguments all the time. I'll tell him like you know turning off the Wi-Fi at night doesn't help you sleep better, and he'll say <laughs> and he'll say it does. And even if I yeah. provide him with a plethora of information about why like Wi-Fi signals don't interrupt your sleep patterns, he'll continue to do what he, <laughs> he, he believes. The reason being yeah, because when a... people are challenged on certain views, they double down and believe it even more, right? So now when we're looking at kind of this economy of ideas, right? So we're looking at kind of inviting people who potentially could cause harm on a university campus. One, you provide them with legitimacy of their views. So anyone who already exists and lives within that space will now feel, oh yeah, I'm actually perfectly fine to make these comments and actually question why there are black people on campus. Uh, I even remember actually one example of the PP common room was, like, was the idea that we shouldn't even bother having kind of like black lecturers because we could get the same information from any, any like white person. That's another topic. But the second thing that it then leads to is even if you then challenge and disprove them, they double down and they believe what they, they believe their core belief 
even more. Uh, and you'll definitely see this in Twitter arguments especially as well. Because anyone who's ever argued with a social media troll knows that even if you're right, even if you provide them with quotes, Wikipedia evidence, video, even if you get the person, even if you get the person who said it themselves to be like, yeah, bro, this is, <laughs> this is what I said, they will never, There's they will no never, winning. they will never back down because people double down. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the, the three, that, those are my views on allyship. You either get false allies, imperfect allies, or kind of, you know, economy of ideas bullshit. <laughs> Pretty much. Dude, that's um that was an incredibly incredibly comprehensive <laughs> view on allyship. Thank you, bro. <laughs> bro, you, you put me on the spot. I don't. I, I don't have to look for the clapping emoji, man. I don't know how I pulled that out of the bag. Like, I literally had to. I was like, "This is profound." Like, is that is that emoji? I can. I can. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you so much. That that's um, that's super important. I get that. Thanks, man. I think kind of as a bit of a final question, then, is there anything? Yeah you kind of want to say or add kind of in relation to literally everything that we've discussed? Um, I, th- I think, um, I think I would probably want to add about the harm caused to black people, okay. not just like losing your life or like, um, like not, not the physical harm that's happened for decades, but like the harm for like, you know, the, the unborn black child who's going to grow up in this world. The harm yeah. for like, you know, just a black person sitting, you know, in a remote place like, like this, who's having to be affected by, you know, tragedies happening in America. Like, so that, that harm is just something I've began exploring and exploring the ways in which people react to it. It's like, I personally, my reaction is that I ignore it. Yeah. And I think, for a long time, like when when the when the when the George Floyd video came out, like I, I I literally watched two seconds of it and then I decided I'm not gonna watch it, right? Yeah. I was like, I'm just gonna read a story. So I, I read, you know, the CNN story and it showed and it said that he died in police custody and I was like, Oh, what a shame. You know, that's awful. I understand why they're protesting. And then literally, Patrick, I mean like two days ago is when I actually watched the entire video. And then I, I realized that he actually died on camera as everyone is seeing like yeah. he like this man was just like strangling him and like that just brought a different level of heartbreak to me like i know like kenya has its own issues um police are killing people like there is you know um poverty there's you know unstable government like there's there are, there are issues in this country yeah but there is just something about like having people having an issue with the color of your skin that just like it, it, it's, it's mentally just more, like, it's just more dangerous. It's more taxing. It, it, it makes you look in the mirror and like, um, you know, ask questions and it makes you question, you know, every single white person you've met. Like it gives you a world of view solely based on the fact that you're black. Yeah. And you have never seen yourself as a black person. Your worldview has always been on, you know, my aspirations my dreams, my, you know, my values. But now every black person, or at least, you know, myself, I started to look at the world as just black, white, or rest of the world against black. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a whole different, like, mental realm of, um, just like, like endurance that, you know, black people need to get through this. And I think that's probably something that, you know, I didn't think I would ever encounter, like, you know, such distress from, you know, uh, being black, like, or such distress from seeing other black people get hurt. So 
I think that aspect and the way to do with that aspect, like it just needs to become something central to like black yeah. people and the societies that we um, occupy. No, I think that's actually really beautiful that you mentioned it because even just looking at again how people kind of deal with it because it, it it's one of those ones where I think e- even I personally I've not been able to actually watch the video. Um, the reason being because I just know it's one of those things where like an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere, and yeah, just a death especially a death of a black person just hits you so much in your chest because it's one of those things which you can relate with sadly kind of wherever you are in the global space i mean we're seeing kind of people in brazil we're seeing people in uh kind of we're seeing people in the philippines seeing people globally black people globally protesting this because regardless of kind of the country that you're looking at they they could bring up examples of someone in that country who's experienced something similar or experienced some type of similar kind of injustice due to the police or due to kind of the structure in which they're in. And I think that's definitely kind of really disheartening to look at because it's almost like sometimes you look at the world and you just think, you just think, why? You just think, it, it, I, don't, I don't even want to say kind of what it is, like the thought, the thought that hit my mind is like kind of like, what did we do? But there's not even any, any kind of justification or reason for it. It's just, you just feel that the whole world hates you and you don't know what you did and there's nothing you can do to change that. Uh, and I think that is kind of a definitely difficult thing to deal with emotionally. Uh, it's definitely a difficult thing to do yeah. psychologically. Um, and I do definitely think a lot yeah. of people are definitely holding kind of trauma um, as a response of this. Yeah, no, I agree. That's that's actually, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's just something that, you know, like you said, it's a different type of hurt. And um, actually, when, when, we, when we were talking, I actually got one last um, thing I wanted your opinion on. Yeah. So I, I, I read a lot about how... Um, you know, I have friends from, you know, Kenya and Uganda that live in the US and, you know, they're telling me a lot about how, um, for, for a time, like Africans and Africans in the diaspora have been kind of disconnected and this is now bringing people together. Yeah. Um, do you have any ideas on, or have you felt disconnected from, you know, people from, you know, yeah. Africa versus, you know, people raised and born in Western societies? I think this is something which you see across kind of black communities globally. There's, yeah. it's, it's difficult. So I, I don't like, it almost feels as though kind of everything kind of comes back to colonialism, but it always kind of comes back to this idea of in groups and out groups and kind of people, it's almost like crabs in a bucket mentality of people kind of attacking each other, dragging each other down because they feel that one person rising or succeeding will prevent them from also rising or succeeding, right? Again, all of us are like kind of black. So people within kind of that black identity fighting each other because of kind of small differences in kind of where we come from or kind of how we speak, fight each other because we think that within the system we've been put in, one group rising or one person rising will prevent us from also doing the same. Um, I think in a more macro sense, you also see that with kind of why a lot of the white working class are kind of the people who will almost be kind of the first to kind of want to dismiss racism, despite the fact that they're actually probably the biggest group who have been penalised by structural inequalities in society. It's this idea that if one group rises or, or tries to fight against something, it will hurt everyone. Uh, and in the UK, you saw that with kind of the fact that growing up, there was always kind of, you know, Caribbeans and Africans and people would just chat shit about Caribbeans, say, oh, you can't have Jamaica friends or blah, blah, blah. Or people would say stuff about Africans, blah, blah, blah. And you see it in America again, between kind of like African-Americans and Africans, this idea that, you know, all Africans live in hearts and all African-Americans just say the N-word and just shoot each other. There's these stereotypes, these misconceptions and these kind of beliefs that we have. And I think, for me, it's one of those ones which is interesting because 
for a long time, I really did dislike the fact that whenever you kind of see a, the black image or the black identity in any space, it was always from the, the American lens. And that was definitely something which did really kind of get me angry. But I think it's also one of those things in which it, it, it's one of those kind of periods where I do definitely see people coming together and actually saying that rather than kind of looking at each other and looking at the differences and the things that we do to each other, which are fucked up. And I'm not going to dismiss any of those things. I think definitely there's a lot of conversation which needs to be had. I think definitely dealing with the fact that dealing with discrimination towards Caribbean people, dealing with discrimination towards African people, dealing with discrimination towards African-Americans within our own community definitely needs to be dealt with. But I think we all kind of united under under that bracket of we're all being oppressed by a bigger system. Um, And what I would also say is that it's, it's always difficult for me to kind of talk about things like this because it's one of those ones where kind of two things can be, can be true at once and I think it's definitely true that there are divisions within the black community but I think it's also true that there are divisions within society itself and I think yeah. as a community we're able to deal with both of those at the same time. I think this is the perfect time to actually talk about issues like why are black trans people discriminated against you know why are kind of black women tr- treated so poorly uh, by kind of black men. These are definitely the times to raise all these conversations and at the same time, look at why is the system itself also fucking up. Dude, that is, that's profound, bro. I like how you ended with a solution. That's, that's very good. Like, yeah. like during this time, you're only ever hearing, yeah, shit is fucked up. And I like how you, um, yeah, you brought it together with, you know, society can change. And this is the perfect time for that. I think, cause whenever you're kind of looking at trying to enact any change, you always have to think, <laughs> how do we actually do it? And as kind of difficult as it, or it's not even as difficult, as kind of weird as it sounds, conversations are kind of at the forefront of having a lot of this change. I think obviously with conversations comes action as well, because empty talking is empty talk. But I think just actually being able to address a bit, weirdly enough, because I, I, I hate whenever people mention kind of South African apartheid as like, you know, the one example of racism. But South African apartheid, I saw kind of a uh, interview from, I think his name's Al... Oh, I can't, can't remember his name. I want to say... Damn it, can't find it. But it was basically... Um, a political commentator who was basically talking about kind of how South Africa was at least, had at least tried to kind of move forward post-apartheid. And obviously they've not necessarily been completely successful, but kind of what they're basically saying was actually just admitting that there's a problem is the first step to having a solution. Because a lot of the time, and a lot of the reason why people are so angry is because kind of society or people in society fail to admit that there's a problem. I think once you admit that this is a problem, these people are being treated unfairly due to whether it's their gender, due to whether it's their race, due to whether it's kind of their sexual orientation or identity. Uh, once you admit that actually these things exist, this then that's when you can go to, this is what we're going to do to solve it. But I think I, I think until there's kind of that admittance, and kind of the acceptance of guilt, you can never really have any actual solution. And, and, if, and do you think white people are at the point where <laughs> like they could nationally like I mean if you if you look at how like the societies are set up, I mean they still have museums, you know, showing yeah. African artifacts. They still they still, you know, deny that, you know, um, you know, the UK tries to put itself on a higher moral standing than America. Like there's still denialism. Like, do you think societies are at a point where they can look at themselves and say we have a problem? I think no. I think as a society, so looking at like I'm going to go back to kind of what we're talking about, about allyship, right? I think the UK is at the false ally stage and America's at the economy of oh. ideas stage. I think, oh, shit, dude. Uh, You're spitting bars. No, because I think, I think America's still at that stage where it's just like, you know... I'm actually going to write that down. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks, bro. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'll turn this into a theory one day. But, like, America, America's still at that stage where 
they're kind of saying, oh yeah, let's get everyone's viewpoint regardless of how dangerous it can be and we'll get them to debate. And once they debate, everything will be solved. But they're not remembering the fact that, again, as I said before, you should never have to debate your existence because you exist. Yeah. Um, Britain's yeah. at the fourth ally stage because we're at the stage where we're like, you know, we're looking at the US and we're like, oh my God, how are they doing this? <laughs> Meanwhile, we're forgetting that, you know, people of colour have been, di- I don't even like to say people of colour, but uh, ethnic minority communities have been dying at disproportionately high rates due to coronavirus. The fact that ethnic minorities are disproportionately represented in the, cr- the criminal justice system. The fact that, again, there are black British people who have died in police custody. Many who have died in police custody, or many who have been experienced uh, police violence. I think as they said, black people are what, four times more likely to experience force used on them uh, when stopped by a police officer, and they're nine times more likely to be stopped uh, by a police officer as well. So we're at that stage where People in the UK are just like, no, the UK is a great place to be. You know, we we love black people. We're, we're great allies, but they're not. <laughs> they're, they're not. They're not. And I, I think until yeah. they're kind of again, until they get to that point where when push comes to shove, they're willing to do the work, they yeah. will not be able to hit that kind of imperfect ally stage. They'll just remain as a false ally. They'll remain as a false ally. What is a, What did you call America? What did you catch? Ideologies uh, like yeah, that. America's kind of the economy of ideas stage. Still in your bars, the world is on fire. Bro, at least at least I've got it on audio. It came from me. (laughs) (laughs) He got you on camera. (laughs) You got me on camera, kid. I'll 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 credit. I'll credit. I'll cite you. (laughs) 